Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your goodness to us. You are so faithful. Your mercies are new every morning. We love to worship you. We love to draw near to you as one in Christ. You are our king. You are our God, the creator of all things, the ruler for all time. And we delight to know you and to be known by you. And we pray, Lord, as we read your word, that you would minister to our hearts, that you would speak to us, that we would grow, draw near to you, that we would heed the things that you say, and we wouldn't uh, forget how important you are, that you are our life, that you are everything for us, and that all our life is found in you, not in things, not in things that we can do. Thank you, Lord, again, for this time, for this place, for this country, for your goodness to us all, in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be doing a couple, a, thing, a little bit different, finishing up from, uh, I can't even remember what we were doing, Colossians. So we are going to be moving to the Old Testament to do some minor prophets to the northern kingdom. And to make us ready for that, we're going to go to 1 Kings chapter 11. Next week, we'll do 1 Kings chapter 12 to talk about the background on why the nation was divided between the northern and the southern kingdoms. And then focusing most upon the northern kingdom, going through Hosea and Amos. At the end of David's reign, he reigned over 12 tribes. It was a unified kingdom. Jerusalem was the capital city, and Solomon succeeded him as king. He ruled for 40 years in Jerusalem uh, from about 970 to 931 B.C., Solomon, admired by many for his great wisdom given him from God, uh, the construction of the temple, the works and improvements he did, and the wealth. I mean, there, it was a time of unprecedented wealth in Israel where silver was as common as stones and the gold was just pouring in and all the nations around them were at peace and ease. Uh, it was a time of peace and prosperity, rest from war, Times were good, and the temple was, it was new and shiny, and everyone was into it. They say that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, and that's true, but it doesn't, the, the cliche doesn't allow for a large slope. Now Solomon, he was very much like David in many ways. He, he feared the Lord, but in his life, later in his life, he drifted from the Lord. He was responsible for great evil in God's sight. And in the case of Israel, as the king went, so did the people, and so did the nation. Solomon's life is a chilling example because he was a man that God gave unprecedented wisdom. He says, before you, there was no one as wise as you, and after you, there will be no one as wise as you. So he had great wisdom from God, a person who knew God, a person who had spiritual experiences with God, where God appeared to him twice, yet he fell into idolatry. His heart drifted from the Lord, and it's a it was disastrous. So 1 Kings 11, starting in verse 1. Solomon did some great things. It starts with, but King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of which the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. 
And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. In the law, God predicted that his people would at some point say, we want to have a king over us like the nations. And so God gave directives to that future king or those kings in the law. And there were prohibitions in Deuteronomy 17 that they were not to multiply gold to themselves. They were not to return to Egypt to buy horses. And they were not to multiply wives unto themselves. And Solomon did all of those things. All of them. And he said, if when you do that, if you intermarry with them, they will turn your heart away from following me. He had 700 wives, 300 concubines. And it says, his wives turned away his heart. His heart was turned away from God and towards idols, the worship of these abominations of the other countries that surrounded them. And it didn't happen immediately. He loved, he loved Pharaoh's daughter. He built a house for her. Uh, but over time, his heart drifted away through those affections. Verse 4, it says, for it was so. What was so? God's word was so. God said, if you intermarry with these other folks, your heart will be turned away from the Lord. And so it was. It was turned away from the Lord. Solomon was given unprecedented wisdom from God. Yet because of his disobedience, in a time of life when he should have been growing wiser, he was growing more foolish, and he made foolish choices. His heart did not remain loyal to God, as David's did. When David was confronted with his sin, he repented. When Solomon was confronted with his sin, he dug a deeper hole and continued in it. And that hole of idolatry, it ensnared him, and it ensnared the nation. Verse 5, For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not fully follow the Lord, as did his father David. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Solomon's heart's turned away from God. He begins to worship these idols. He's still, now don't misunderstand, he's still going to the temple, probably daily, He's offering the sacrifices. He's meeting for the high feast days. He's continuing to pray to God. He observed the Sabbath according to the law. But into his life came this additional idolatry where he was also uh, following after these other gods. The one who built the temple of God on the temple mount, he also built high places right in view of the temple on the Mount of Olives, what we call the Mount of Olives on that east side. Altars to these gods, these high places where his wives burnt incense and sacrificed. And some of these, like Molech, required the human sacrifice of children. He built those altars. He built those things. It was a terrible turn for a king in Israel to accommodate 
and to facilitate such sin. A nation that God had blessed with his covenant and with his peace. He had an immense harem, and it says there, he did likewise for all his wives, his foreign wives. Not all of his wives are foreign, but many of them were, and they were the ones that turned his heart away from the Lord. Jerusalem plunged into a, a time of idolatry that it had not seen in the days of David, or may I say even in the days of Saul. There was not this sort of widespread idolatry in Judah. To me, this illustrates you can have a parent who's loyal to God. You can have wisdom from God yourself, but that's not enough to deliver you from the snare of sin. Solomon had great wisdom from God, but because he was disobedient, it's like it rendered it impotent. He was not able to draw upon the wisdom of God because he was following after the flesh. We might think that wisdom from God, if I had wisdom and insight from God, it would be almost an inoculation against sin. It would spare me the consequences of sin because of my relationship with God or because of the things I know that are right and the things that I agree with. Therefore, I, I am free or exempt from bad consequences of sin. But that's not true. Like cancer, it starts in one microscopic cell in the body that develops into a tumor that can be malignant and threaten the health of the whole body. That's the result of disobedience and rebellion before God. It can start very small, and it usually does, but it grows. This departure from God, this pursuit of idols, it was prophesied. If you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32, starting in verse 15. It wasn't prosperity and self-sufficiency that was the problem as far as like prosperity. There's nothing wrong with being prosperous or having things, but often things can draw our hearts away from the Lord. It leads to self-sufficiency uh, self and selfishness. Deuteronomy 32, 15. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat. You grew thick. You are obese. Then he forsook God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, not to God, to gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. Of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful and have forgotten the God who fathered you. It says they forgot God. They forsook God. God who had given them everything, who made them healthy and strong, they forgot about him, and they forsook him, and they kicked out at him. He had given them a directive, and they kicked that goad. They were unmindful. In hard times, our tendency is to cry out to God with desperation when things are tough. But in peace and ease, we can grow complacent. And we don't pray to God with the same sort of intensity, do we? Back to 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 9. The results. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel, who appeared to him twice, and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, 
Because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. When God is displeased or angry, it is always for a good, righteous cause. There is a just cause when God is angry. God had appeared to Solomon twice. He had spoken to him. But these spiritual experience, these divine revelations, they were insufficient to change Solomon's heart. They did not move in him uh, repentance. And we might think that if God would just reveal the, the facts to me, or if he'd give me the truth, well, I'll change. Or there's something in me that's actually good. <laughs> if, if I was to exercise that spiritual gift, or if I had this knowledge that I don't now possess, then I would do what's right. And Solomon is a perfect example to say, well, that's not true. That's not true at all. Um, with revelation from God brings responsibility before God. He had responsibility before God because God had spoken to him. God has provided us revelation through his word. And we've had a spiritual experience that Solomon never did. Remember Solomon, he built a temple for God, for the presence of God in the holy place. But we through being born again in the gospel, are the temples of the Holy Spirit that he indwells. So we have had a spiritual experience that Solomon hasn't had. God may not have spoken to you directly in a dream or a vision, but he's spoken to us through his word, and we have it. Like, he's like, I appeared to him twice. I hope you've read your Bible more than twice. Like, you've, you've opened it more than that. And God, he can speak to us when we see a bird in the air or just like a lightning flash across your mind. God's not limited by those things. He's not limited by our piety. He will speak to you. And he holds us responsible for what he tells us. Now, Solomon did receive a third revelation from the Lord. The message was not as desirable as the first two times. In 1 Kings 3... God comes to him and says, ask what I shall give you. Is that the kind of revelation you'd like? Like, what do you want? Ask me anything. Like, if God asked you that, what would you say? How would you respond? Well, Solomon, he's like, man, this is a huge kingdom. I don't have the wisdom to govern these people. Give me wisdom so that I can do what's right in your sight. And God's like, you know, because you didn't ask for money, because you didn't ask for a long life, because you didn't ask for peace from your enemies, I'm going to give you all those things too, plus wisdom that no one has ever had before. It's like, wow. So he sacrificed to the Lord. He worshiped God. In 1 Kings 9, after Solomon had prayed and said, Lord, inhabit this temple, God said, I have heard your prayer. I've heard what you said, and yes, I am going to dwell among you. I'm going to make this place my abode. And he made a promise to him. He says, if you do what's right in my sight, I'm going to establish your kingdom forever. You will always have a son on the throne. But there was also a warning. He says, if you depart from me, there's going to be consequences. Now, this third revelation is all bad. Um, he's saying, you didn't keep my covenant. 
you disregarded my word. I'm going to tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. But I'll show mercy upon you for David's sake, my servant. My servant David, for his sake, because he feared me, you're going to be the king of a unified kingdom for your life, and I'm going to allow your son to have a tribe, to still remain king, for David's sake and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I've chosen. We don't read anything of a response from Solomon this time. The other two times, there's a response. This time, there's no response or repentance. 1 Kings eleven fourteen. Now the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was descendant of the king in Edom. Skip to verse 23. And God raised up another adversary against him, Rezon the son of Eliada who had fled from his lord, Hadadezer, king of Zobah. So he gathered men to him and became captain over a band of raiders when David killed those of Zobah. And they went to Damascus and dwelt there and reigned in Damascus. He was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon, besides the trouble that Hadad caused. And he abhorred Israel and reigned over Syria. Then Solomon's servant, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite from Zereda, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow also rebelled against the king, and this is what caused him to rebel against the king. Solomon had built the Milo and repaired the damages to the city of David, his father. Solomon took an adversarial position against God. People reap what they sow, and God raised up adversaries against Solomon. So the God who had made peace in Jerusalem and peace for Solomon, trouble begins to brew and stir up. We might assume as God's chosen people that the devil's the culprit when we have trouble, you know, that illness or that strife or conflict, you know, like the devil must be behind that. Well, in this case, it was God who was behind that, uh, God himself. Remember when Saul was lifted up with pride, 1 Samuel 16, 14, it says, but the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. God was the cause of that, and it was to bring him to a place of repentance. God raised up adversaries to trouble Solomon so he realized you're not experiencing peace because of your policies, because of the strength of your military might, or your wisdom. It's because of me. He wanted him to repent and be restored. Earlier in his reign, this is what Solomon wrote to King Hiram. In 1 Kings 5.4, he says, But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor evil occurrence. Wouldn't that be a nice thing to be able to write? There is absolutely nothing going wrong here. Everything is peaceful, nothing evil to speak of. We're all at rest. That wasn't always the case. Now they're suddenly not at rest. Because of his sin that he would not repent of or forsake, there was trouble that came from inside and from outside. God caused his adversaries to gain strength, and really it was a self-inflicted wound. It was very much because of his choices. Before we fall into a trap of making this a type and assume people that are experiencing conflict or, or trouble have sinned and thus deserve their pain, let's remember the lives of Job Joseph and Jesus as examples to the contrary. Job suffered the loss of all things, not because he was wicked, but because he was notably righteous. God said, look how righteous this guy is. He really loves me. 
He's offering, he's offering sacrifices for his kids. He really fears me. Is there anyone on the earth that is as righteous as Job? And Satan's like, no. But if you took away his stuff, he wouldn't love you the way he does. And God's like, okay, you can, you can take away his things. You can even afflict him the second time. And we'll see. God allowed Satan to strip Job of his wealth and his health to later demonstrate his faithfulness in restoring Job and giving him double what he had previously when Job repented and prayed for his friends. Joseph was sold by jealous brothers into slavery. He was an upright man. He was later falsely accused of attempted rape. He was forgotten in prison. But what was intended for evil, God meant for good because through his wisdom and the revelation given him by God, Egypt and the children of Jacob were saved. Jesus never sinned. He was righteous in himself. He's the son of God. And God, it pleased him to bruise Christ, to allow him to be crucified and to be separated from the, the Father so that we could be saved, so that sinners could be brought to repentance. We can't know why our sovereign Lord allows the prosperity of the wicked or allows such difficulties to befall his people, those who fear him, why there's upheaval in families or uh, why there's conflict among the nations. But we do, what we do know is that God fulfills his, his righteous plans and he will redeem even purposes of evil for good. What, what, what the devil means for evil, God uses for good. It is true that people reap what they sow, but it's also true that people reap what they have not sown. Remember the children of Israel as God brought them out of Exodus. He brought them into a land with vineyards they didn't plant, houses they didn't build, fortifications that they had nothing, that God's like, here, this is a gift. It wasn't because they followed, because you followed me so well in the wilderness, I'm going to bless you with this country. No, it was because he loved them, he chose them, and he had, a, he had land for them. He says, I'm going to bring you to that good land that I promised you. It wasn't because they were the best people or the strongest people. It was by grace. So let's not forget that. God has not dealt with us according to our sins because if he did, we would not be here and we would be in hell eternally. But by his grace, he is long-suffering and he gives, us, he gives us opportunities to repent and he communicates to us that we need to repent. He provides everything we need. Solomon's case shows the devil is not to blame for our sin. God holds us accountable. God does no evil but when we choose to do evil, we bring it upon ourselves. The Lord raised up an adversary, Hadad and Edomite. Uh, David had warred against the Edomites in his youth, and he had had to flee the country. There was a bit there that was just uh, for the sake of time. We didn't read through exactly. But he had a grudge against Israel because of the battles that had happened and how the Edomites had been treated. Another one was Rezon. He was a Syrian, another adversary raised up. He too remembered and resented the warfare that had occurred between David and his people. It says he abhorred Israel. He hated them. And so he worked to trouble them. 
Jeroboam, he's different than the first two because he's a, he's a Jew of the tribe of Ephraim. He rebelled against King Solomon. It tells us why he rebelled. It says Solomon had built the Milo and repaired the damages to the city of David, his father. Solomon was very demanding of the people in taxes and in forced labor. That's how he built his stuff. The people, instead of having them just stay at their, I mean, Ephraim's quite far away. He had them travel down and he made them work on built, rebuilding the damage to the city of David, which is on a pretty steep hill. If you've been to Israel, that, if you go down to the, the pool at the bottom and you hike back up to the old city, you might be a bit knackered by the top. Jeroboam, he was a man of Ephraim. He was sympathetic to their plight. He didn't, it doesn't even say he wanted to be there. He was made to be there, and he was also made their captain. So he was a man of authority, and he was sympathetic to them. We also read a little bit more right now um, why he was known and respected. Verse 28, the man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor, and Solomon, seeing that the young man was industrious, made him the officer over all the labor force of the house of Joseph. Now it happened at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah the Shilonite met him on the way, and he had clothed himself with a new garment, and the two were alone in the field. Then Ahijah took hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and will give ten tribes to you, but he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David." And for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Milcom, the god of the people of Ammon, and have not walked in my ways to do what is right in my eyes and keep my statutes and my judgments as did his father David. Jeroboam, a mighty man of valor. Solomon recognized he was industrious, he was ambitious, he was a hard worker, he could get things done. And he made him an overseer of all the workers of Ephraim, which was the primary or the prominent northern kingdom tribe. Then something happened that emboldened Jeroboam in his ambitions. The prophet Ahijah meets him in a field, and he's pretty wearing this nice, slick, new robe. And surprisingly, he rips it into 12 pieces, and he hands Jeroboam ten pieces. And he says in the name of the Lord that God would surely tear the kingdom away from the son of Solomon and give him ten tribes for him to rule over. Notice again, for the sake of David in Jerusalem. It was not for Solomon's sake. It was for David's sake. I am going to leave you with one tribe in Judah. And he explains why God stripped ten tribes away from the hand of Solomon. The people forsook God. They worshipped and sacrificed to idols, did not walk in God's ways to do what's right, and did not keep his commands. Notice it's a general thing, the people. So he's not blaming Solomon for it or even Solomon's wives. Well, you know, Solomon's wives, they're, they're a bad group, and they, they're the cause for all this. No, he says the people, they were brought into it too. So Solomon's wives were into idolatry. Solomon began to facilitate it, and then the people joined in as well. It was the people that he talks about here. Sin has this propensity to spread. 
It starts small in your heart, but it does not stay contained. It will find release somewhere in the things that you do and the things that you say. It cannot be contained forever. It will show itself. And all this time, I mean, the temple has been built for like 20 years, 30 years. I don't know exactly when that prophecy was given. Solomon only uh, reigned for 40, and it took him seven years to build it. So it's still pretty shiny and new. It's well attended by the priests and the people and the Levites, and the sacrifices are happening morning and night. The tithes are coming in accordance to the law. The singing of the priests, that's all happening. But it's all in earshot of the cries of child sacrifice and fornication on the mountain. People were not walking in God's ways. They didn't do not do what was right before him. So the worship of him was a bribe he would not accept. We think, well, you know, won't you accept, like, I'm giving you this, and it doesn't really matter what I do with the rest of my life. But God's like, yeah, it matters. Because you're worshiping all those other gods, that, that worship you're giving me, it's unacceptable. I will not receive it from you. In the eyes of the people, King Solomon, perhaps he seemed more religious and righteous and reverent than David, but not in the eyes of whom it mattered most before God before whom he would answer. It's like, man, I want to be quick to repent of my idolatry, covetousness, and greed. We need to put sin and, and idols away from us. Not justify ourselves, but do what he says is right, because his judgment is what matters much more than my opinion. I mean, his is everything, right? To us, and to some, maybe Solomon could do no wrong. He built this grand temple. Every time they saw the temple, like, wow, Solomon built that. What, what an investment in the worship of God. Look at what he's facilitated here. This is the right way to use taxes, right? They would all agree, this is awesome. We have this grand edifice to worship the greatest God, the one true God. But God doesn't overlook faults because of sacrifices or long prayers. He looks at the heart. He looks for faith demonstrated through obedience and for repentance. That's what he looks for. Verse 34, however, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand because I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose because he kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and give it to you, ten tribes, and to his son I will give one tribe, that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen for myself to put my name there. He says God's determined that Solomon is going to reign over a unified kingdom for his life because of my servant David. I like how he says that just over and over. My servant David. That's the way that he saw David is as his servant. And see the blessing that that godly dad and godly king provided for his children and his country. Isn't that amazing? That it wasn't for Solomon's sake, it was for David's sake, because he was his servant. He would keep one tribe, Judah. You might wonder why there's only 11 tribes when there's 12. Right? He gives them 
10 pieces of garment, but he says, I'm going to keep one. Now, Benjamin at that time had been absorbed by Judah. Uh, Jerusalem is actually in Benjamin's territory and right at the top part of Judah's land, and they had become one. So when he says Judah, it's including Benjamin. That light of the menorah was to shine continually. Judah, it was a testimony of God's choice of David as a man after his own heart, and he had faithfully followed him. Verse 37, so I will take you, and you shall reign over all your heart's desires, and you shall be king over Israel. Then it shall be, if you heed all that I command you, walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight, to keep my statutes and my commandments, as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build for you an enduring house as I built for David and will give Israel to you. And I will afflict the descendants of David because of this, but not forever. Solomon therefore sought to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Ahijah prophesied God would take Jeroboam, make him king over all Israel, he made of a promise similar to what he made to David and to Solomon. He says, if you'll listen to me, if you'll observe my commands and do them, I will be with you. And to me, that's like, isn't that enough? That God would be with you. That he wouldn't be leaving you. He'd just be with, be with you. And I'll build you an enduring house. And he says, yes, I will afflict uh, David's descendants, but not forever. And I was like, wow, what grace of God. As believers, as followers of Jesus, we suffer affliction in this life, but not forever. We will not be afflicted forever, even for sins that we commit, because Jesus has washed us clean of sin. And though there will be consequences for sin in this life, um, because the wages of sin is death, and our bodies will go the way of the earth, unless the Lord takes us home to be with Him before that, God could have wiped out Solomon and his seed from the earth before his servant David's sake. He would preserve him. And he says, the affliction's going to end. I'm like, right on. When Ahijah revealed to Jeroboam, God also revealed to Solomon. Right? So the prophet meets Jeroboam in the field and says, God's going to give you ten tribes. And God had spoken to Solomon that third time and said, I'm going to give the kingdom to your servant. When this was connected, Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam. At the end of his reign, Solomon acted a lot more like King Saul than he did King David, trying to kill people he felt threatened by. God promised Solomon, you're going to be king over Israel all your days, but that wasn't enough. He sought to kill him. And with that threat upon his life, he fled to Egypt where he remained until Solomon's death. Jeroboam, he was industrious. He had that great work ethic. That was the reason why Solomon chose him to be the foreman. But God chose him by grace. It wasn't because he was a great guy. He was a hard worker. Um, but it was by God's grace he gave him that opportunity to rule and made that promise to him, that conditional covenant, saying, if you will hear me and if you'll do what I say, then I will build you an enduring house. I like what Matthew Henry said of this industrious future king. He says, Jeroboam did not deserve so good a post, but Israel deserved so bad a prince. As we'll see next week, not a good guy. 
as far as not one who feared the Lord. He was, he was not a worthy king, but he was given an opportunity if he would obey God and heed him with that promise of reward and blessing. Judah had largely been purged of the idolatry. The northern part of Israel had not. That had continued in a lot of idolatry all throughout, as we will read about Dan. And I've been to tell Dan and the, the place where the altar was set up that Jeroboam made. Before long, the wickedness of Jeroboam would be exposed, and the people and him were like peas in a pod. We'll see they got along very well in their idolatry. So more on this next week. Verse 41, now the rest of the Acts of Solomon, all that he did, and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? And the period that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. Then Solomon rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. At the end of 40 years, Solomon passed. He was given an honorable burial in the city of David, like his father before him. But despite his wisdom and wealth and prosperity, he did not live worthy of his father David or of God. The book of the Acts of Solomon, that's not included in Scripture. And when you look at this picture of, of the wisdom of Solomon and the prosperity the kingdom of Israel is really a dichotomy where you have this glorious temple that's surrounded by idols made by the same king. It's like, well, this is inconsistent. How, how does that work? He was a king that was given great wisdom, yet he became increasingly foolish as he grew older. Solomon and his people were given the law of God, but they forsook it to follow after idols. That couldn't save them. God put the choice of life and death before them, and they chose life on their own terms and thus embraced death. They had this shiny new temple gilded with gold, but their spiritual condition was dire because of their idolatry. Almost in an instant, the kingdom would be split in two, severed from top, just right through the middle, Ephraim and Judah. And eventually, both kingdoms would fall to the Babylonians. That, that temple that the people praised and adored, it would be broken down. The doors would be stripped of the gold. The bronze pillars would be shattered into pieces and carried away. The altar would be cold. The place that was supposed to burn with that eternal light, it would be darkened and empty. For 70 years, no one would worship on that mountain in the temple. When everything looked to be so good, not all was well. And we can look like all is well, but it doesn't mean that we're spiritually healthy and in a good place. People were complacent in their wealth and their ease. They did not listen to God who had given them wealth and peace. And the wisest man who ever lived was swept up in idolatry, turning from God and turning to idols. Now, the wise among us will lay this passage to heart as a warning to say, wow, you know, if it can happen to Solomon, it can happen to me too. I might start my race following Jesus well, but God forbid that I would turn from following him, that I would stop listening to him because I think I know how I ought to live. We don't have to repeat those mistakes because the Bible says Jesus has become for us wisdom. 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. God's far wiser than Solomon because God gave Solomon all the wisdom he had and still had more to give, right? God's an infinite source of wisdom. God does not dwell in temples made with hands, but he's promised to be with us and that he's building us an eternal home in the heavens with him where righteousness dwells. And he's say, he has decided to make our hearts his dwelling place now. And we've received the Holy Spirit that down payment of that promise. The fact we've received wisdom from God, it's no guarantee that we will continue to keep listening to God or continue following God. Do you want to keep following God? Do you want to continue honoring and loving Him? Thinking back to David's life, remember that time when Saul was trying to kill him and he's hiding in the back of the cave and Saul's resting, and David's men are like, now's the time to kill him. You know, he's been after you, or just let me do it. He's like, no, don't touch God's anointed. But he went up to him, and he cut the corner off his robe. And there was this line that says, his heart smote him after he cut that, the corner off the robe. He was so convicted. His conscience was so tender before God. That when everyone else was saying, you are justified to kill that person, he just cut off a bit of fabric and he's like, oh, that was the wrong thing to do. And he repented. And we don't see that again. Whenever David did sin, he did sin. But when he did, there was repentance. We don't see a repetition of that sin. That tender conscience, that repentance, that was in David before he was crowned king and when he breathed his last, there was that integrity in his life. And may we be those of integrity. Think how many blessings Solomon enjoyed, probably things he took for granted, for the sake of God's servant David. The peace, the wealth, the materials to build the temple, the people that God had united. Think of the blessings and the goodness we have received for the sake of Jesus Christ the servant of all. He is, if David is a servant of God, Jesus even more so, the perfect servant of God, the servant of all. Let's not just be like Hezekiah, who when the emissaries came from, um, emissaries came from Babylon after he was sick, and he, and the prophet came, after he showed him everything, the prophet came and said, hey, who are those guys that you showed the whole kingdom? He says, oh, they're from Babylon. It's a place that's far away. You know, I showed them. And what did you show them? Oh, everything. There's nothing that I didn't show them. I, I gave them the grand tour. And he says, well, those people that are from far away, they're going to be back. And they're going to take this country from your children. And your kids are going to be eunuchs in their palaces. And he's like, well, at least it's going to be great while I'm alive. What God has said is good. So we acknowledge that God has the right to do as he will with his things. But that shouldn't be our heart to just say, well, as long as I have peace in my days, I don't care what my kids have to face. But if you follow the Lord and you walk in his ways, think of the blessing that will be upon your children and upon the nation whose God is the Lord. When you fear the Lord and you walk in his ways, that's a blessing for your kids that they take for granted. They may not even recognize it. 
But what a, how awesome that God's blessing will come through that. Through the obedience of one person, many were made righteous. Through your obedience to God in honoring him in your lifestyle, in your relationships, at your workplace, there is a blessing that God will say, my, for the sake of my servant, I will do this good thing. And I want to be the one who's one who brings blessing. Last thing. When the people of Israel came out of Egypt, we learn in Joshua that they kept their idols with them. That's bizarre, right? God proved his power over all the idols of Egypt with those 10 plagues. Yet the children of Israel came out of Egypt and they carried all their idols with them. And they, they kept them, whether as keepsakes or to worship, all the time when they went into the land of Canaan. So 40 years have passed. They go into the land of Canaan. They drive out the inhabitants. Before Joshua's death, he calls everybody out on their idolatry. You're like, whoa, that should have been dealt with a long time ago, but it was still there. And he says, are you going to serve the Lord? Are you going to follow him only? And they go, yeah, we're going to serve God. He's our God. And this is what Joshua said to them in Joshua 24, 19. You cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. He says, you say you're going to serve God? You can't. Now, personally, I don't like it when someone says, you can't. Like, hey, I, I get to choose what I can and can't do, right? But he says, you say you want to serve the Lord, you can't serve the Lord. And you can't serve him because you still have those idols. And you're still worshiping them. And you're still holding on to them. And you haven't repented. So if you're, if you're going to put your money where your mouth is, if you're going to serve the Lord, put away the idols that are in your tents and in your lives and that have been passed down from generations. Get rid of those things. Then you can serve the Lord. It's impossible for you to serve the Lord, regardless of your protests, unless you repent. So God gives us that opportunity today that we would repent of sin, that he is exposed in our hearts and our lives because there's hope for them. There was hope for them, and there is hope for us in Christ. There is hope for you. It doesn't matter if everything has been idolized by you and you've forgotten about the Lord and you, you don't even believe that he can help you in your state. There's no hope in us keeping our word, but there is hope in God, and there is salvation in him and deliverance and help if we will repent, if we will turn from our sin and trust him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us hope that there is new life in Jesus Christ and that you have made us your dwelling place that when we receive Christ by faith, you dwell within our hearts. Thank you for sanctifying us and justifying us and giving us such great promises. And Lord, we, we look at this, I look at this story of Solomon's life and shudder, just knowing his great wisdom exceeds mine and yet his folly was great. Lord, forgive me of my foolish choices. And may we be those who who call sin what it is, and we put it aside. We throw it out, and we persist in it no more. Looking to you, not kicking against you. 
So, Lord, if we've been those who are kicking against you, if we've been saying that we're, we're wanting to serve you, but we haven't been repenting, Lord, I pray you would bring us to that place of complete surrender before you, that we would rejoice in your salvation. And thank you for the many blessings that you've given us for the sake of Jesus, for what he's done and what he's accomplished, and for uh, your calling us and ordaining us to be your ministers here on this planet, to, to be used by you, to be a blessing to children and be a blessing to this, these people that we're living amongst, uh, to be a sanctifying, to, to impact the sanctification in this, this world that we live in. Lord, we pray that you would use us, you would enlighten us so that we might uh, follow you and do the things that please you. Lord, thank you so much that you are God, that your Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, of righteousness and judgment, and that there is hope in you, there is forgiveness in you, that you might be feared. In Jesus' name, amen.